0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 50 years ago, a study started, and the goal was to find and to try to understand extremely smart kids. It was started by a professor at Johns Hopkins named Julian Stanley, who was getting sick of doing research in his office and not coming into contact with real people. So he's feeling this malaise, he's looking for something a little bit more exciting, and he hears about someone named Joe Bates, who's in a freshman computer science class at Hopkins, which did not really make Bates
1: unusual, except he was 12. He was in this class, and he was doing better than everyone else. Camilla Benbow
0: became Julian Stanley's protégé and eventually took over his study of smart kids.
1: And the instructor of the class, after he had finished this course, really wondered what in the world should she do with him? She thought sending him back to eighth grade didn't make sense when he was doing as well as these engineering students. But, you know, back in the 1960s, we didn't really know much about how to work with these gifted kids. So she walked down at Johns Hopkins. She walked uh, and met Julian Stanley and said, please help me out.
0: That's when Stanley did something that he would do many, many times again for years and years afterwards. He sat the kid down in front of the SATs.
1: And Joe Bates did phenomenally well on the SAT. So he had him entered into Hopkins early. And another mother heard about this. And she said, my son is just as gifted as this Joe Bates.
0: (laughs) I feel like a whole town of people probably said, my kid is just as smart as that that guy.
1: Right. And you know how mothers are. That's what Julian thought, too. Yes. Yes. Mothers, you know, they always overcompensate and think about their children as being so bright and so talented. Right. So he said, well, I'll just put an end to this. I'll give him an SAT, too. He won't perform as well as Joe, and that'll be it. Right. Well, he took the test, and his scores were just as good as Joe Bates. So then Julian had to think, wow, if there are two boys like this who can do this well on the SAT and still be in junior high, how many more are they? They're out there. And so he started the talent search uh, back in 1972.
0: David Lubinsky is a professor who joined the study and ended up marrying Camilla Benbow. They're now both at Vanderbilt. And he remembers what it was like to watch gifted kids come into contact with other gifted kids over the summer when they would gather together to take classes as part of the study.
2: When you see these kids for the first time in classrooms with their intellectual peers, where they don't have to suppress their vocabulary, where their peers understand their humor, where everyone loves to learn so they don't have to hide how they feel about taking math classes or literature classes or physics classes. They just flourish.
0: But beyond the camaraderie and the physics and the literature, the researchers were trying to figure out what made these kids tick,
1: no matter what their background was. And many of the kids that we picked up through these talent searches Parents didn't realize how gifted they were. Schools did not realize how gifted they were. It was kind of a hidden talent. And so what I would like to say is that we really were looking for kids who really had these strong problem-solving abilities, irrespective of the curriculum that they had been exposed to. We also did sort of now, you know, it's a retrospective study, but we asked the parents to kind of look back upon you know, how, you know, they're rearing, you know, how did they respond to their child? What did they do? Did, you know, were these flashcard kids or, you know, what have you, you know? (laughs) And we could sum it up that the parents almost uniformly said that we really tried to respond to the child. If the child wanted you know, this opportunity, we tried to provide it. Or if they were interested in puzzles, we got them puzzles. Or if they loved books, we got them books. But we didn't force them. And for example, it was so interesting, we compared them to kids who were, we looked at the kids who were really exceptional high scores on the SAT and compared them to the kids who were more towards the lower end of the SAT. But they were all gifted, but you know, separated, and it was interesting to see that the parents of the highly exceptionally gifted kids didn't feel the need to control TV or anything like that. I remember this was a long time ago, so you know you didn't have computers and things like that to worry about. But it was they didn't feel the need to control TV, whereas the parents of the other the gifted but not as highly gifted kids had limits on the time that they could spend in front of the television, and so on. And what the parents said was that these kids were just thirsty for learning, and they they didn't need to because they were just responding to the kids' needs. And I remember we had a, a parents who, I remember this couple, the parents were not highly educated, and uh, I think they had an eighth-grade education. And they said, you know what? He's so much smarter than we are. We, we don't know how to respond to him. But, you know, if he says he wants to do this, we figure out a way to get it to them. Hmm. I, you know, And they said to him, and the mother once said, he talks so much about this math and science. And she says, you know what, I could care less. But he's interested, so I listen. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I keep, and I humor him. Right. And, I, you know, so I would like to say is that these, you know, these kids... They really are, can be found everywhere. And that was our intent, to find them, even in these places that often these kids get hidden into.
0: David, that sounds like it speaks to the nature versus nurture question, because if all you're doing is responding to your kid who's saying, um, can I get more you know, books about science, or can you get me more puzzles or more ways to build things or whatever, and you're not even initiating it as a parent, that sounds like at least at this, you know, pretty young age by junior high, there's a lot of nature in here, a lot of sort of natural thirst for learning that that parents didn't even necessarily create.
2: Yeah, there's there's not only a thirst for learning, but there's a lot of nature and nurture in terms of their motivational proclivities, what students are passionate about. You know, nowadays, there's a lot of talk about math and science and STEM careers. But in our ever increasing technological culture, mathematical reasoning is becoming more and more critical for not only STEM, but other domains. All these kids pretty much at summer residential programs have laptop computers that they're carrying around with them. And over the lunch period, it's just kind of fun to walk around in the lunchrooms and you'll see some kids looking at scientific discoveries. You'll see other kids reading the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) They're all over the board with respect to their interests. And we try and cultivate that. But Mm
1: -hmm. what I'd like to add to that is that these these kids do have a... you know, have a thirst for learning, they're very passionate, have a lot of zeal. But you know, that can easily be snuffed out because so many of these kids were just so bored to tears in the regular Hmm. classroom. And so what you need to think about it is nature and nurture working together. And if we don't nurture those talents and those proclivities that they come with, they diminish over time. So I want to I wanna get back to that question of how you nurture, nurture it.
0: But let me talk about what you found. Over, I mean, following people for over 40 years is an incredible thing. It's really rare. What did you find um, when you followed some of these incredibly smart 11-year-olds and then tracked them down decades later? What were they doing? Does, you know, does early success lead to later success?
1: Absolutely. Overall, they do. I think that if you look at these individuals, and I keep calling them kids, even though they're 50 years old, because I remember them as kids, you know, (laughs) but you know, we have data on them at, you know, 12 or so, and then at 18, 23 to mid 30s, and now 50. And you know what, overall, as a whole, as a group, they do really well. But what we found was just making sure that kids are challenged. And they can be challenged in so many different ways. But those kids who were challenged, they tended to do better in later life. Even though all of them, as a whole, there's a great variation, but as a whole, everyone was doing exceptionally well. Hmm. And I would say, that when you look at the individuals who have participated in these talent searches that are now conducted by Hopkins, Duke, Northwestern, and so on, uh, you know they 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 identify about 200,000 kids a year, and then there are programs and summer programs and academic year programs that are designed for those kids. If you look at some of the top innovators and the top names in this country. Many of them have participated in these programs, and I can't name out names because they're confidential, but you can just going to have to trust me that these, these are names that you would know.
0: <laughs> well, it has been discussed, I think, that Mark Zuckerberg uh, mm-hmm. did one of these programs and Lady Gaga did. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, so some of them, I think that's right, are sort of on people's tongues. You know, these are the names that we know or that, that yes. are tastemakers or change the business world or whatever. That's correct. I'm Karen Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Camilla Benbow and David Lubinsky, both at Vanderbilt, about a nearly half-century-long study on extraordinarily smart children. So when you think about brilliance um, and what you've found looking at brilliant people, what is a belief that is commonly held that you just think, like, that is not right?
1: You know, there is this concept out there that a lot of people talk about, it, a threshold effect on ability. Some Many people believe, and you know, Malcolm Gladwell has spoken about this, but lots of people have spoken and said, oh, you know, after a certain point, abil- and more ability doesn't matter. You know, yes, you need to be above average, but beyond that, other factors are, more, are important. Like hard work. And critical, right? Like, hard work, yeah. you know, and so on. And it's not that that isn't important. But what we have seen is that if you hold all these other things constant, more ability is better. So
0: a lot of the kids that you came into contact with um, would take classes in high school, in college even, while they were still in junior high. David, I wonder if there's a downside to that kind of like age mismatch in a class uh, where you're simply not at the place that your peers are at.
2: You know, you you always have to work with the individual child as a group. The transition seems to be easier for girls than boys because they mature a little earlier. But really the best practice indicates that these kids, and you can't always do it, but they need to be with their same-age intellectual peers. That's what's important.
1: But, yeah, the point is, even if they are with older kids, many of these gifted kids actually prefer to have friends who are a little older. So, sometimes, you know, yes, the ideal is to have kids who are the same age who are also gifted. But if that ideal can't be met, and you look at the gifted children and who they like to play with and be with, they like to hang out with kids who are a little older. Uh, because they're they're a little bit more similar to them.
0: Camilla, l- let me ask you a little bit about nurturing kids. If, if somebody's got a really talented kid, and sort of putting them on the right path to do something with that talent, I mean, it seems like in the last few decades, in both the US and Europe, we've seen a pulling back uh, on gifted and talented programs. Uh, whereas in Asia, there are more and more of them. Is it good? that we have pulled back on gifted and talented programs and and sort of putting
1: those kids in a separate track? What do you think? I think it's sad. I think that our knowledge-based economy, highly technological economy, today requires high levels of talent. And I think that if you think about how we're going to be competitive in this world today we gotta be a country that has the best ideas and we also have to have a country that, you know, has a strongly strong and well prepared workforce. I think that not nurturing all the children in our society and letting them go to the as far as their talents will take them is is a mistake and I think that we have pulled back and I think I think not only is it an individual loss, because I think these individuals will get lost and get bored in the system, it's also a societal loss. These are the people who are going to transform society. You mentioned names already of individuals who have had impact, and we could mention other names and other contributions that they make. but. It isn't just an individual loss. Our society depends on developing these talents. We don't want to be a country where the ideas are in some are being created in other countries and our people here will have to work for their ideas and develop their ideas. We want to be a place that continues to have the great ideas and transformations. And most of those ideas will come from kids who were identified as highly gifted. So it's in our best interest to nurture those individuals. Now, I would say... That there is a difference between nurturing and trying to create a gifted child, and I and that's what I warn against. Not pushing, Sometimes not pushing your parent, kid too, too hard. Right. It's one thing for parents to be responding to their gifted children, and giving them what they crave and desire and need. But it's another thing to be pushing them and forcing them to do things that go against their grain. Mm. I see parents maybe pushing children to do things, and not because they have a love or a passion for it, but this will make you look good in an admission process for college or for a job or what have you. Right. When parents invest too much of their own ego into the development of their children, that's when it gets a little dicey. Yeah.
0: Camilla Benbow and David Lubinsky are co directors of the study of mathematically precocious youth, which spanned almost 50 years. Camilla and David, thank you so
1: much for your time. Thank, well, thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: quick dip into history for the story of a kid who almost made it into a genius study, but didn't. Now, this study began long before the Johns Hopkins study that we were just talking about. It started at Stanford in the 1920s, and it missed two Nobel Prize winners, one of whom, a guy named William, has, I can pretty much guarantee you, changed your life. William became a physicist and joined a team at Bell Labs in New Jersey, which was a storied place for scientists. It brought together a lot of the great minds of the day. And William's team worked on a project that I'm sure they thought was important, but they would have no way of knowing how important it was. The project was to make a better vacuum tube amplifier, which was used for transmitting radio signals, telegraph signals, had a whole bunch of other uses. So they tossed ideas around, they built on each other's thoughts, By the end of the 1940s, they came up with an invention that made possible the modern electronics industry, the transistor. William Shockley shared the Nobel Prize for that invention. And right around that time, he decided he'd move back to California, which is where he'd grown up because his mother's health was failing. Which meant that he started working with silicon in a part of the world that would soon be named after that element. But back then, back in the mid-50s, the area around Palo Alto and Mountain View... That was mostly a bunch of fruit orchards. Also around that time, Shockley started having more and more trouble getting along with people. He could be mean and arrogant. He left his wife while she was recovering from cancer, and he started arguing about race and intelligence, questioning whether some races might be less smart than others. Pretty quickly, Shockley was skewered in the press. The public was finished with him. Even his family largely grew distant from him. Someone who had been famously passed over by a study of brilliant children was ultimately shunned by society because of his own ideas about intelligence. When he died in 1989, the man whose work made possible every single electronic device you own, who helped create the transistor, was a pariah. His children reportedly knew he passed away only when they read it in the newspaper. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. Cambridgesavings.com/slash CSB1.